you and I, we met in, in St. Paul, um, Minnesota for the first time. I had you on my radar for a longer time, but then I met you live and I feel like you and I, we immediately clicked. Um, and you're a super interesting person. So just for anybody who doesn't know you, um, you're the founder of From the Future. You're co-founder of Traffic Think Tank. And you play for the Michigan Wolverines. No, I'm just kidding. It's not the like Eubanks. <laughs> but you know, there's a, no, that's a, that, that is a much taller, much more muscular, better looking Nick Eubanks. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if he's better looking. Uh, uh, I think he's like 6'2 and like 220 pounds. I think, I think he's much more of a, uh, yeah, <laughs> I would definitely say he's better looking. He's certainly a big guy. That's for sure. Uh, but I'm not sure if he's smarter than you. So one thing that I wanted to touch right off the bat is uh i've been stalking you on your side a little bit and you wrote on your about section that you sold your mom's minted iced tea on the street corner and you're obsessed with winning so you're kind of the gary vaynerchuk of seo <laughs> no, not, i'm just totally kidding i'm totally kidding <laughs> it's only playing with it but no I, I mean like you're an insanely driven person that's where i'm trying to get to like that's what's what i felt immediately when we met in saint paul so where's that coming from like what do you think uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think some people were just born to be really competitive. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, um, it's probably a really difficult thing, uh, for a lot of like, like for, throughout most of life, like being really competitive and like hating to lose through like elementary school and high school and, and college. I mean, um, it can be okay in sports, but it's really difficult. I feel like in, um, in business and in life in general, um, and uh, it caused for a lot of speeding tickets in in high school, um, but yeah, I don't I don't know I don't I don't know if it's it feels like it's an intrinsic thing, but I but I don't I don't know where where it comes from, so to speak. Yeah, I I, I totally understand. I feel like you and I we share that same kind of feeling. Like I hate to lose. It's like and it's it's much less that I love to win. It's much more that I hate to lose. I'm I'm, I'm just it just terrifies me, right? So I feel like you have the same kind of same kind of drive it allows you to build Which is, all these it's things. so hard in seo though. oh no but it's crazy in seo right because like like you know you, you can lose or you can you can feel like you're losing even if you actually aren't losing yeah. like there, there can be certain like like you could you know there can google can can have a snafu with a ranking update or or you can see some fluctuations or you can a term can pop onto your radar that you're like ah we i you know, we need to own that term uh and and it's gonna be a slog to get there and, and that um I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie uh, Ninja Ninja War Ninja Warrior Ninja Ninja Assassin. Uh, I th I thought that was a TV show like that, but I don't think I've seen the movie. So Ninja War uh, uh, the Ninja Warrior is a show, but right, Ninja right, Assassin right. is a is a movie, right. um, and it's like kind of gory. It's not a great movie, but there's a there's a line in the movie about uh, like the the clan that like the master sensei is like, coaching, like teaching. Like he like kidnaps children and like turns them into these like ninja assassins. But he talks about like his whole thing is like you must hate losing, you must hate it in others, you must more than anything you must hate it in yourself. And and it's extreme, right? It's an extreme thought, but like uh, I totally get that. Yeah, no, but I feel that. Uh... And yeah, I feel like I really have to watch that movie. But uh, yeah, I you know, like that's why, like, I love competitive sports and all that kind of stuff. And but at the same time, I gotta be really careful because that stuff eats me up. And it's the same thing with Google updates. You know, it's like, you know, like sometimes <laughs> traffic is down for like you didn't mess anything up, you did everything right, and there's still something changing or user intent changes for a keyword, and you got to completely yeah. pivot. And I just hate that stuff. So I, anyway, I feel like you and I were <laughs> driven kind of by the same passion. Um, 
And you're also driven by cars, I feel like, or you're super intrigued by cars and passionate about yeah. cars. So what's, what's, how many cars do you have? A hundred? Uh, no, no, it's four. Four. Okay. Only four. Uh, <laughs> what's the, what's your favorite car? That you own? Um, I mean, it's definitely, uh, my favorite car, or the favorite, my favorite car that, that I have now that you own. It's very different. Oh, um, my, the Audi that I have right now is a lot of fun. Um, it's the fastest car that I've ever, uh, driven. Um, and I've, I've had a lot of cars like before, before I met, um, my wife, uh, I probably had, I don't know, like 30 cars, like just like not at the same time, but like just throughout, like, uh, I crashed a bunch of them. I blew a bunch of them up. Um, just lots of, lots of bad, um, bad decisions growing up. Um, but, uh, I've been working on cars as long as I can. I started working on boat engines when I was like eight, nine years old. My, my, my uncle owned like a boat shop, like a boat marina. Um, and I would like spend my summers, like going there and like, like uh, sanding like boat props and like and like repainting boat props and and like rewiring engines and and uh, like learning how to do fiberglass work to like repair like boat holes and stuff and and then it just it segued really easily into cars um, so like I was I was really into building like uh, Japanese like four cylinder like uh, Civic and like so like Honda and Toyota engines in high school was like a really big thing like me and all my friends got into and spent a whole bunch of uh, you know all of the money that we made working our part time jobs like it all went into car parts and. Um, destroyed a lot of car engines because i didn't know what i was doing wow so you built boat engines when you were eight or nine i think when i was eight or nine i ate mud or i did something very stupid <laughs> you know what i mean that's impressive so you kind of you kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit from early on you're super into cars so this is where this is all going to like where does all where does building internet businesses and you know, working on cars and buying fast cars and being super hyper competitive, where does all of that fit together? Like what's, what's the, you know, like what's the bridge between all of that? I think, I think there's like a, there's a component of um, like sort of being an adrenaline junkie. That's probably like right at the center of that, that Venn diagram. It's a three part Venn diagram. Like right in the middle is like, um, like the dopamine hits that you get from like like succeeding or like uh, like from the adrenaline that comes with it um like building businesses winning at businesses you know like is is very rewarding um super competitive uh driving really fast cars is can be really competitive i mean it's one of those things where i can be alone on a, on a highway and um and still really enjoy just like sort of disconnecting like disassociating from everything like just sort of like like letting go in the car but um i definitely have a hard time letting uh, people in other cars when I'm on, when I'm on the road or I'm out, um, pass me. It's, it's a, it's a very, um, juvenile, uh, competitive obsession. No, but I understand. I understand. It's like, it sounds weird, but like when I walk and people try to pass me, I walk faster. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do that. Uh, so I can totally understand, but I don't own, I don't own a car that's fast enough to really race people. So I don't even attempt it. But, you at least uh, have like, I mean, you've been on the Autobahn, I take it, right? Yes, so yes. I don't, I don't know if you've, um, if you've ever gotten to really open something up on there, but that's like, uh, I mean, that's the ultimate driver's experience, right? Yeah. Have you driven in Germany? Not, no, I've not, I've not. So I've, I, I, uh, eventually, um, so the, the factories that are in Stuttgart, uh, so Mercedes, Porsche, and Audi, um, they have, uh, there's a, a, a program you can do called uh, European Delivery. I don't know if you've heard of this, yeah. where if you're in the U.S., you can go and have, you can actually pick up your car there, and they'll go, you'll sit in the car, they'll give you the demo, they'll give you a 15-day, like they'll line you up in a different hotel every day around Europe for 15 days. You'll get, they'll give you a European driver's license, and you can drive your car throughout Europe, and then they'll ship it back over to you. Um, I haven't, I'm not, I haven't 
picked up a car yet that I feel like is at like that level. Like it makes sense for me to like, be like, all right, like I need to go drive this car around Europe for 15 days, but that's on my bucket list. Oh, I totally understand. Yeah, I, I went fast in Europe. Uh, and it's also a different type of uh, driving, especially in Germany. Um, you know, people make much more room for you, especially when you come in hot. Um, and it's, I, I would never dare to do that here in California. Honestly, a lot of people drive so <laughs> bad. I would never dare to go that fast, but I did. And now I'm, I'm like, you know, my car is not even that good, but, uh, I, I totally feel, <clears throat> you know, as a German, I feel your, your passion for, for speed and for hot cars. Uh, and I'm satisfied to hear you own an Audi and not a Ford or something. <laughs> not a oh, I've, I've, it's, uh, every, every car right now is I have uh, two German cars and one British car. Oh, wow. Uh, British. That, that, are, that, are here, that are here in the city. Yeah, it's a, the Range Rover. It's a 2018 Range Rover SVR with about 730 horsepower. Jesus. That is fast. But Range Rovers are, are nice. Design. Those are nice cars, man. They had the Evoque coming out a couple of years ago that I remember. That was the first time, I think, when they pivoted to a bit of a younger audience and a bit more sporty. Well, it's a four-cylinder, right? Yeah. So there's, the, the worst part about it is you've got the Evoque has two engines. You can, they're both four-cylinder, but one's got a turbo, but it's still a four-cylinder. Like, why are you going to get an, S, an SUV if you can't – you literally can't tow anything with it. You can't even – I mean, you can't can't tow a bicycle. Like, it's a four-cylinder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, totally great. Hey, so uh, coming back to internet businesses. So – when you start one of those, what is your thought process? Like, how do you how do you approach that? Do you just wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh shit, I want to build a business in that and that niche, or is there some sort of discovery process? And if so, like, how do you like what is what is the method? Um, it's generally <laughs> um, it's generally like exploitation. Um, it's it's almost always stumbling across something and and being like, wait, like there's 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 a lot of traffic here or, or hold on, like these are really expensive clicks or there's not much competition. And then, you know, the, 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 the SEO purist goes down a rabbit hole of, of competitive research and you sort of uncover this gold mine. It's like, there's a lot of opportunity right here to, you know, to monetize, like the monetization, like I always try to find the traffic opportunity first and then can try to figure out how to monetize it. And I used to do it the other way around. I feel like when I first got started, I would all, I would like try to figure out business models and like look for monetization, and then be like, all right, this is the monetization strategy I want. Now let me figure out how to get traffic. And my opinion is that's completely backwards. Yeah. I think you need to find like find the traffic source first, and then back into the monetization. Then find the business model because you're probably going to have to crash and burn a few business models before you find one that's lucrative anyway. Um, but it's almost always by accident. Got it. And so I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, especially in terms of monetization, I feel like the the traffic opportunity kind of also paves the way for the right monetization model. Do you have a preference for anything? Is there like uh, like affiliate ads, uh, subscriptions, or anything that you prefer, or do you not care at all? Lead gen, love lead gen. Yeah, yeah, has uh, um, I think good margins, and I freaking hate ads. Like I hate anything ad based. Like I don't think it's it's, it's nice. I mean, it's, we've got. I mean, we've I've got one site right now. Um, that's all the revenue is mainly ad driven. And, and, and like, I, I get it though. Like it's like, if you're able to build a five or six figure a month ad business, like you're terrified about Google updates. Like you have to always be managing like, like the fluctuations, like, like the pulse of, of, of how those, those, like, cause I, I don't, I don't buy traffic for any of these sites. I think it's all organic. Um, but it's beautiful just having money just show up every month into the <laughs> bank account. Like they're like, I, I do, I understand people that are still building MFA sites. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think also it depends on kind of the way of advertising. I feel like native advertising, there is a play there that is even okay in certain times or in certain situations. 
but a lot of times I feel like people put a lot of effort into content and sometimes experience, but not into the ad experience, right? Into, into yeah. the, so that's, and that's constantly upsetting me. And I, I, I'm still, I'm still stunned how sites like Fortune or Entrepreneur or Man's Health can actually, are still ranking for anything out there. It's, it's hell. And not to mention, like you said, like the, the, the minimal amount of ads that they try to put in and the way that they put them in, in these just extremely traditional places where ad blindness is rampant. Like, I don't know how some of those sites make money. I mean, I understand that the, the page views are tens or hundreds of millions a month. Like I understand that the volume is there, but it's just like one of those things where, you know, a 1% lift in, in, uh, EMPV or, or click through would be just massive amounts of money. And, and it just seems like nobody cares. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I learned that lesson the hard, well, not the hard way, but kind of, uh, the hard way when it was at daily motion, which is a site with hundreds of millions indexed video pages. Uh, and we had two types of ads. We had kind of the in video, like, um, uh, what's it called? Like the apps, basically the ads in the video. Pre-roll. Pre-rolls, thank you. Uh, but then we also had a couple of banner ads, um, on the actual page. And it's like, no, like the, the click rates are so insanely low. And then you go, you go to like a view model. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, Jesus Christ. Uh, impression CPM. model. Yeah, CPM. Yeah, thank CPM. You. So I'm not, I'm not, I didn't have enough coffee yet. <laughs> Basically goes out on point. Uh, CPM model. And it's just, it's just a downward spiral, right? Cause like yeah. you get like smaller and smaller margins, which means you have to advertise more and more, which means your experience deteriorates. And then like you're just, it's just a downward spiral. So I feel like the way that New York Times, like this model, I feel like there is a lot of substance behind it, but then also not a lot of businesses can or are the New York Times and have the same kind of, brands that allows to switch to a subscription model it's crazy watch i mean i think i think medium is really struggling to get people to pay the five dollars a month um i i, I just i i you have to have you have to have such an embedded audience and you have to have like you have to you have to embrace the you know the netflix model like you have to go and make massive investments to get content creators that already have an audience and then you have to bring the audience with you into the platform i think trying to create the audience on the platform behind the paywall i don't think it's ever going to work no, no, absolutely not. Uh, and I agree with you. You know, like I, the thing is, I, I read a lot of stuff on Medium, but whenever I get the paywall, I just save the article to pocket and then read it there. So, yep. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, on the other hand, I pay for New York Times subscription because I feel like journalism is important, right? And we like, I kind of yeah. want to contribute to that. Uh, but all of that kind of actually what I feel like somehow has to happen is like, a platform agnostic pay model that has you pay per content, you know, like, I don't know, 10 cents per article, wherever you read it or something in those regards. I feel like there has to be a, a much more embedded payment system um, that also allows you to pay per consumption and not kind of a flat fee. But anyway, I feel like it's, it's, it's almost a, a problem you can't really solve. Um, I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing that disruption with, um, uh, with, with, uh, uh, show production, like, uh, with television production right now, where you've got, you know, disruptors, YouTube's a big player in the, in this, in this space, right. Where we're starting to, to real like, like, uh, these platforms are realizing like, um, we cannot, like, we need to be platform agnostic. We need to create a solution where people can, can, um, ad hoc buy just the content they want to consume. And like HBO go, I feel like is, is trying to do the right thing there. I think Xfinity probably has the biggest leg up in. They're not doing it yet because they're making billions of dollars, you know, uh, uh, extorting all of us for cable bills. Um, 
but I feel like that's like that's where it's going to end up going. Anyway, it's going to be here's the menu, and if you want to watch The Office and Friends and Real Housewives and Stranger Things, then you just buy those four subscriptions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a constant kind of cycle of bundling and unbundling, right? Where all of a sudden you have a new kind of uh, content channel popping up, like HBO, and then you have Netflix, and then Disney, and then. NBC, MSNBC, I think, also has announced some, I don't even recall the name, some weird kind of offering. And then there will be probably, I don't know, like Apple coming around and be like, hey, I offer you all four of these for whatever price yep. and it's going to unbundle again. So it's a constant cycle. But actually, I like, I love how Disney approached this whole thing and how they're positioning themselves. I think they're going to be a really, really strong contender because their content is just so, so massively good. I mean, yeah. like Marvel, Star Wars, sign me up anytime. Uh, cool. So, um, that being said, um, like let's, we also kind of, in terms of building businesses, um, one thing that is, I think really upsetting you at the moment is kind of people who steal content. What's going on there? Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who are a big deal, um, who like to steal content. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily as on purpose as I think sometimes it gets painted out to be. And I think it's more so that there's sort of creative car blanche probably given to the people who are managing the content production in, in some of those companies. But um, the uh, the amount of policing on the web is certainly very low. And, and uh, SEO Twitter is, uh, is a place lots of good ideas go to die. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, it's, it's the echo chamber of journalism, right? And I mean, it's, it's not going to stop happening. Um, it's one of those things where I, the, if you're not a big enough name, like, I don't know, it's, I don't see a solution anytime soon. I think that, you know, if, if the people who have the big enough, the, the brands and the, and the, and the individuals who have big enough um, audiences, they can take whatever they want and represent it. And it's going to, and they're going to have the, the mind share and attribution and, um, I don't see a way to stop that currently. So yeah, I totally agree. A necessary evil. It kind of is, right? I mean, you, you see this with content syndication or just you know content duplication, where as you said, um, or as you described, when a bigger brand like Yahoo, for example, uh, syndicates content from a smaller publisher, like they're going to outrank them most of the time. Uh, I was just at SEO Oktoberfest, and somebody presented exactly that case where they were like, "Hey, look." Uh, like we're not getting a canonical from content syndication or even a backlink. And what's basically happening is we're getting some money, but um, a stronger player easily outranks us. But then there are also, you know, as you said, I feel like, I mean, I think like the skyscraper thing, uh, in no offense to, to, uh, to backlinko, but um, the whole skyscraper thing kind of almost gives people permission to copy a lot of stuff out there. Uh, and I see that myself and I see some of my content being copied uh, almost verbatim. And then I always ask myself, like, should I, I mean, it, it upsets me a little bit, but like, should I care or should I not care? Because what can you really do? Like, is it, is it all worth it or is it just something you should live with and make sure you kind of bring out good ideas constantly? My, I guess, um, I like the idea of taking the high road. And, and I think that I, I like to believe that I try to take the high road too, but there are definitely like, there are instances where there's an idea that you have that you formulate and you're probably not the first person to have the idea. There's like, I mean, there's not that many new ideas, right? Like it sounds crazy and, and, and dark, but like, um, but like you're the first person to encapsulate an idea, give it a name, wrap it up, spend the time and research to present it. Like 
my the one for me was um like I had been talking about this idea of rank potential ten years ago, and and it was a, it was a concept I continuously had to explain to people. So I wrote a post about it, and my post was on a tiny little blog. And like as soon as somebody else picks up the idea, takes a bunch of my research and edge cases, and presents on the idea of rank potential, then like now I see people talking about this idea, and like that person gets all the attribution, and like. I don't need credit for it, but at the same time, it gets frustrating. It's the same idea with like the, the monopoly method, right? So like I wrote about the idea of a certain monopoly, which is like rank, have the rankings where your audience is. Don't like, you don't need to own, you don't need to own the platforms that your audience is going to in order to be able to create mind share and awareness and make sales and drive meaningful traffic. Like, like, like own the entire first page of search. Don't just worry about the, the, the domains that you own. Um, and, and it got a little bit of traction, but then somebody else, like within the past 12 months, picked up that idea, built an entire presentation around it, went and like, and now that I like that person is getting all the attribution for this idea. Um, there is a level of frustration that I don't know is ever going to go away about that stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and it's funny because I ran to a similar thing where um, I kind of, um, I don't want to say it came up with it, but I, I kind of and presented you, about this. You, you took the pieces and you, you're the one who, the first person to put it all together. You, yes, exactly. And so I thought I did that actually with this uh, thing called Tipper that I that I presented, that I wrote about. And then um, I think I did, but then Dennis Hollerhuber approached me, who is now the new head of growth at PayPal. And he was... I think one or the first SEOs at Airbnb and pay and Airbnb, uh, sorry, uh, eBay and Airbnb and a couple of other crazy businesses. So he's a really good guy and friend of mine. Uh, and then he came over and was like, Hey, look, here's this blog article that I wrote, I don't know, 10 years ago. Uh, we're already talking about merging internal and external links and looking at Kyrank. And it's not the exact thing that I kind of did, but there are no new ideas. You're absolutely yeah. right. And that's, I, I kind of thought about that a lot. And that's why on my blog, I wrote about synthesizing ideas. So basically combining existing ideas because I truly believe there is no new ideas. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's a bit, it's a bit frustrating, you know, um, to see something that you share. And I mean, you basically don't have to share anything, right? You could just keep it for yourself, but then the SEO industry and scene kind of lives from, people sharing their stuff and then you share that and you see somebody else sometimes with a bigger audience just kind of snagging that away from you and not even give you any credit or, or even a backlink or something like that so it is but then again like what are you going to do right you're going to sue them you're going to start a twitter yeah. war for no reason like <laughs> <laughs> i feel like the only thing it can do is just the, keep coming up with good ideas the, the smartest way i've heard it put was actually by a friend of mine who's a musician and the way that he thought about it was he's like you know like as soon as you make something and you put it out into the wild like as soon as you put a song out there publicly it's no longer yours it's whatever anybody else says it is it doesn't matter what you think it is and what you think it's about you it, it, you no longer own that song like you created it but that like the, the idea the framing the perspective that all of it what the the meaning it has is all going to be whatever anybody else thinks or feels about it. and i thought that was kind of an amazing perspective to have about uh any any creating creating anything at all whether it's a, a lump of clay, a painting, or writing a blog post. I love that. That is that is absolutely smart and deep and probably gives you also peace of mind, right? Uh, so, yeah, yeah. That, that's amazing. Um, but there's something I want to touch on. You spoke about that um, mind share uh, in terms of owning content or just being present on other domains, even though you don't own them. What is your... Um, what is your, what is the strategy behind that? What's the approach? I do understand kind of the basics, you know, like, I don't know, like Reddit or Quora ranks high. So you try to get the, the highest comment or thread or whatever on these platforms. But how do you, how do you scale that? Uh, 
I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, I mean, it's I, I definitely look for a similar, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation, I look for like pockets of opportunity. So like one of my favorite examples that I like talking about was um, I had realized, uh, so I'm not big into local rankings, like for for um, for agencies, like I, like, oh, like rank it, like back when I had my first agency in like 2007, like I wanted, it was really important for me to rank for like SEO Philadelphia, SEO company Philadelphia. And I spent like six months just making sure I outranked Sear. And it generated like five leads total and they were shit leads, just the worst, <laughs> worst leads that existed. But there's like nuances to it, right? And like, so the idea of having a, a more specific keyword that has a modifier that's important to me, that is localized, like there's some vanity to that that I appreciated. So um, I like when I realized like, hey, like meetup.com will let you create any URL you want and put it right in the root directory. I was like, I, you know, maybe I, let me see what I can do about that. So, um, so I was able to grab technical SEO and we used it to launch a meetup. And the only reason like we launched the meetup because I, 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 I like having the meetups. I like, sh- like sharing um, the information and like a lot of the cool shit that we're doing here. And I think my team really enjoys sharing a lot of the work that they're doing in a more public, you know, like atmosphere arena. But I wanted to rank, I was like, I want to rank number one for technical SEO Philadelphia. I just, it was a vanity thing. I was like, I just want to rank for it. And, um, and so like if you Google technical SEO Philadelphia and you're outside of Philadelphia, you'll see the meetup ranking. But if you're anywhere, even in Pennsylvania, you'll see, uh, you'll see the meetup ranking number one and the individual meetup page rank, like for the event ranking number two. And then you'll see a blog post that we wrote about the meetup ranking number three. And then you'll see an article that we had written by a company called Technically Philly about us for the meetup ranking number four. Like it's like that, like the implementation is very simple once you identify the opportunity, right? Like backing into the strategy all starts with stumbling across um, a potential way to exploit the search results. <laughs> and I feel like that's where the competitiveness shines again, you know, is that kind yeah. of was a vanity thing, but you just want to own it, which I totally understand. And interestingly enough, um, I was just, uh, I just spoke at Swivel and Ben Oregon a couple of weeks ago and Will Reynolds was there as well. And he spoke exactly about the same thing. Like how much value is there to own the keyword agency or SEO agency in X city? And yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, or a bit tricky, but that kind of funnels into something else that you're also really, really good at, uh, which is keyword research. Uh, so I often, like I saw your presentation in St. Paul about keyword research and was very intrigued. And I heard from lots of people that you are the keyword research man or the master of keyword research. So what's, what's kind of your, like, what do you feel like people are missing out on, on keyword research, um, on a, on a broad basis? So on the broadest basis in our industry as a whole, um, any, like, Anybody who doesn't realize how important um, uh, PPC data is um, for doing keyword research, like 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 you're losing the moment you step in, like you step off the, the, the starting line for the keyword research race if you're not using paid search data. So like one of the things that that we'll do is you know if we've even if we've got a client who um, isn't already doing paid search or they're not investing enough in paid search, we'll still tell them like hey like we're gonna we're gonna spin up a campaign for you and we're gonna run paid search for three months. This is not for sales. If you get any leads or any, and you make any sales, cool, that's gravy. That's sprinkles on top, but that's not why we're doing this. You're just paying for data. Um, but using that to inform like the entire strategy, I think is like step one that is probably one of the most overlooked 
elements and like anybody who's been doing this for a while knows that but i feel like like there's not a lot of information out there people who are just getting started talking about how critically important that paid search data is to inform an overall strategy um and then i also think that people get caught up on there's, there's two other sort of blind spots that i run into a lot when i have conversations about keyword data with other people in the seo industry and those are uh, people not going big enough to start like they'll be like, oh, like, you know, like, yeah, like we did keyword research in our files, 10,000 keywords. And it's like, all right, cool. So like you've got this much of your industry. So like, you know, the idea of, of mapping an actual industry and using empirical data, like, you know, you should have hundreds of thousands of keywords to map an entire industry to understand, like, if we're going to map all the funnel stages and we're going to pull out all of the intent modifiers, whether those are prefix modifiers or suffix modifiers, like, like understanding how like what that entire universe looks like and who your online competitors are, especially like within each phase of the funnel, like who are our top of the funnel competitors versus who are middle of the funnel competitors. Cause like, that's how you're going to find weaknesses. So if like you're able to, if you realize like, all right, like all the way at the bottom of the funnel and all the way at the top of the funnel, these are really big companies, really big budgets. These are extremely entrenched key, like SERPs, like, but you find like, Hey, like there's this pack of 15 or 20 different modifiers that represent minimal middle of the funnel intent. And there's only maybe, 15 or 20,000 searches per month in here, but these are, these are underserved. These are underutilized. Like there are, these are these, like the, the sites ranking for these are shitty results. These are, these are companies who aren't in this space. These are not direct competitors. Like, like finding the, like stumbling across those weaknesses is where I feel like that's for the opportunity to find patches, um, you know, of, of like using that to drive priorities. And, and one of the things that we tell our clients constantly is like, we're in the business of it's like we're, we're not in the business of creating demand right seo is all about responding to demand that already exists but you have to sometimes be really creative in finding it um but it, the best thing that we do for clients i think is prioritize like that's our that's our job right our number one job is just like is to, is to manage the priorities and they change week to week or month to month or quarter to quarter but like it's constant reshuffling of priorities because the landscape changes the budget changes the business objectives change so it's always this reshuffle of priorities um so I don't think there the people go people don't go wide enough is I think one of the big the big two and then the second one is the exact opposite which is um, people a lot of SEO they'll talk to they'll talk about the work they're doing internally in house for their client or for, or in house for their company or for their clients and they'll have these giant priority lists it's like how how many how many priority keywords do you have for that client five hundred what <laughs> like like we we've got we've got companies we work with that have you know tens of millions of like non not publishers just brands but tens of millions of visits per month organically and they have 50 priority keywords there's yeah. 50 yeah. that like that like there are the, the sun the moon and the stars there's a lot of other ones that are important but the priority list is this big so like it's that same concept where like you, you need to go huge to define like that macro like that that macro market like how big is the vertical but like when it comes down to like you can't if everything's important, nothing's important. So like you can't have 500 priority keywords. Like, even having a hundred is tough. Like we've got some clients that are like, these are the 15 keywords that are going, that drive a meaningful impact to our business for about from awareness, conversion, revenue, leads, whatever it is. So like, it's like, if these are good, then we can expand and, you know, further the list, but the, every, like, this is the most important set. Like we really need to manage. Um, and I don't hear enough people talking about that, the concept of like having like a, a very tight list of priorities that you're able to, really um, manage attribution against. Yes, I think you're absolutely spot on. It's the same thing for us and every other business that I worked at as well, whether it was uh, Atlassian or Dailymotion or, or now G2, it's the same thing. And actually with that list of, of core keywords or, or you know main priority keywords, like what like you notice every climb in ranking position, like even going from four to three, like you notice yeah. in revenue and an impact. It's, it's unbelievable. And I also really like how you kind of mentioned that 
um, you have different competitors at different stages of the funnel because it's the exact same for us, right? Like the further down the funnel, the more we're competing with other software review sites or marketplaces. But the higher up the funnel, you all of a sudden have publishers, you have Wikipedia, you have yeah. blogs, you have all kinds of stuff. And it's so interesting to see how that shifts because Google tries to figure out uh, user intent, obviously, uh, on a constant basis. And especially with uh, top of the funnel keywords, you often have uh, much more shorthead stuff. And so... Short-term keywords are much harder to figure out for Google from a user intent perspective. And so you have much more volatility and you have to, yeah, uh, just constantly figure out how that, how that kind of, how to make that work. But then, um, what kind of tools do you use for keyword research? What are your favorite tools? Um, so in, uh, uh, like for ecom clients, it's PLA data, but like we always start with the AdWords dump. So like always dump AdWords. And if we don't get, um, we don't get enough, uh, data there, it'll be like, like, all right, hey, like, like, uh, to the client, you know, modifiers that we found just by downloading like the top 100,000 keywords that you're like, so using Ahrefs and going to the competing domains, sorting by uh, unique and then sorting by a unique competitor and then pulling out all the big guys. So like any of the big name brands or like for e-com, the Amazons, the Ebays, uh, you know, and, and like uh, Fortune 100 companies, remove all of them, look at everybody else, download all of their top ranking keywords, and then use those to pull out modifiers. And then based on the modifier set, if we're not finding those modifiers present in the AdWords data, it's gonna be like, all right, we are gonna need to build new campaigns for you guys. We're gonna run a few months of AdWords. We're gonna cap the spend, but we're just gonna go collect data on these modifiers. We wanna look at the behavior. Like, are is there, like, do we have an opportunity to supplement your paid acquisition efforts by uh, diverting money, like diverting some of that investment over to the organic search side. So over time you can reduce paid spend in that area completely, or we can completely offset or supplement your paid spend with just organic. Um, and especially works, we do a lot of B2B uh, e-commerce, uh, 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 sorry, a lot of B2B SaaS and B2B software. And especially for those where we can't afford, like, or it's unlikely we're going to advise our clients to spend money on buying those top of the funnel clicks. And instead we want to use SEO to get the click, drop the cookie, and then be able to retarget, remarket to those people later, like, like spend the money on much further deep in the funnel. Um, but like to build those audiences, we really want to use SEO to try like to, to build the, the, the initial cookie sets. Um, that, I guess that's a, that's a really big one. So it's, it's leveraging pay search. Uh, I love Ahrefs to this day. Um, I really wish Ahrefs had a keyword API. I think that they're probably doing a lot of things that have nothing to do with software that are making them tremendous amounts of money that they don't talk about, which is probably why they don't have a keyword API. Um, so we lean on SEM Rush for their keyword API pretty heavily. Um, I love Keyword Keg. I'm a huge Keyword Keg fan. Um, that's the, the fastest way to spin up a keyword list of 500,000 terms is, is definitely Keyword Keg. Uh, and Kevin and Akash, the guys behind it, are brilliant and super nice and easy to work with. Um, that's probably the big. That's probably the big set at this point, really. Uh, and then we've got a bunch of internal tools that we've spun up just to help uh, organize stuff. Like um, one of the our favorite thing, like one of my favorite things, is to look at the difference in intent um, shown, like demonstrated specifically by like how different are, like how how much overlap is there with, within two SERPs um, or isn't there within two SERPs by taking a modifier and moving it from a suffix to a prefix, like taking the same keyword and literally just moving the modifier from the back to the front or the front to the back and watching the entire SERP change. Like that's some of the most fun stuff from a behavioral psychology perspective. Yeah. Um, and I also love doing that to find pockets of opportunity. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and then um, when you run pay search on lots of these terms, I do assume that, I mean, do you run pay search on all the keywords that you're trying to test or do you kind of narrow it down from a couple hundred thousand to, I don't know, a thousand or something? And you also oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you narrow it. So, and you also mentioned that yeah, you're not, narrow, we're not running, yeah. 
Go yeah, ahead. we're not going to be like, all right, hey, hey, client, we need you to bid uh, a minimum of 20 cents on these 100,000 turns. <laughs> and we're just going to run this for three months. And uh, don't worry, it's only going to be 5 million bucks. <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, no. So we, uh, the modifier identification is a big piece uh, of the way that we build our total addressable market analysis. Um, and we do a lot of seeding and refinement. And that's where like a bunch of the tools that we're using these days, like big queries become like an all time favorite thing um, for me because we can, we can pile in shit tons of data into big query and then we can use center uh, to write the SQL queries to push like to, to narrow that all down and then we'll pull it like from you know from uh, BigQuery we'll use something like Stitch as our data connector to pull that into uh, Data Studio um, or you know Tableau or, or some other visualization studio like uh, visualization tool set where we're able to make sense of a lot of this junk. Yeah I love that. Uh, BigQuery has become so powerful and now have a integration with Google Sheets so you can run queries right from Sheets which is amazing. Yeah. So Google yeah. Sheets is incredible man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. There. I mean, it also has some like ridiculous weaknesses or flaws where I don't know like how they can miss something so basic. But in the grand scheme of things, for a free tool that is so easily integratable with other stuff, it is absolutely amazing. And also love Data Studio so much. Use it on a constant basis because you can just you know pull data from different sources uh, together so quickly. Yeah. I don't know how why not more companies and people are doing that. It's re it's relatively easy to set up. Um, and also just having your own database of information is so powerful to not, and also not relying on other third party tools, right? Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned is, um, the PPC data for certain keywords. Like one thing that you're also going to get is more accurate search volume because you'll see all the impressions that those keywords have. Like you should build a database of that. And even yeah. though it might be a bit seasonal, like who cares? It's much more accurate than anything else you get. You can, you can also run simple ML libraries against that database. So like, as soon as you have a database of even 20 or 30 million keywords where you've got data over a 12 month period, you can be able to run the ML, like a pretty simple ML uh, algorithm against it. So it learns and you'll be able to predict seasonality. And if there's like incremental growth rates over terms and those trends, you'll be able to like no longer need to make those requests because with a pretty high degree of certainty, you can be like, we know that this term is growing. Like, the, like the, the demand for this term or the volume for this term grows quarter, you know, quarter over quarter by three percent. So we can push this all the way out and we see the seasonal re like um, simple regression models too. Like even just applying a standard deviation to that shit, where it's like, you know, it's not it's not terminal growth forever. Like we know there's going to be a cap here. Um, yeah, that that stuff is is all. I mean, that's the fun part of, of this stuff, right? Is is being able to really collect big stores of data and and have intelligence that's not out in the public. Yeah, 100%. Like you have your own unique, like data that, that gives you kind of almost unique information. And as you said, you can, you can watch the market grow or a certain aspect of the market grow. And I think you can, I think there's even, um, and I, I might be leaning a little bit out of the window here, but, uh, I think there's even a play to kind of almost forecast user intent changes, especially when you have a short head keyword, then you look at all the long tail keywords and you see which of those might gain more search volume over time. Um, that this might have an impact on the shorthead keyword and how Google interprets the user intent, right? So uh, I'm trying to make this a bit more tangible. Say, for example, you look at the keyword Independence Day, which obviously once a year has a completely different meaning than the rest of the year. So the rest of the year, it's more like the movie. And then obviously once uh, 4th of July hits, it's it's much more about the celebration. Um, and you can really see the the uh, climbing um, search volume or, or user demands for long tail keywords or 4th of July um, holiday related 
long-tail keywords, right? So for example, 4th of July celebration, 4th of July party, 4th of July uh, fireworks, right? Like all of that kind of stuff climbs the closer it gets to the holiday of 4th of July. And then after that, it's all coming back down to the movie. So I feel like when you have such a big database of terms that are really important to you and you're able to kind of cluster shorthand and long-term keywords together, you can almost understand how user intent might change for those uh, shorthand keywords. Uh, but it takes a bit of firing power. I, I love I love talking about like how drastically intent can change too. And two of my favorite examples are: Have you been following any of the conversation threads in Traffic Think Tank about from the big publishers and some of the um, the uh, the Eastern European countries where you see the 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 query like 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 the query volume for the individual keywords completely drop like off a cliff, and it's only on weekends, and it's because the intent on those keywords changes completely on weekends. So Google completely changes who's ranking just on the weekends and then it completely goes back like, and it resets us over and over again. Like these pattern spikes hmm. are crazy in some of these conversations. And in the same instance, like uh, Red Ventures is a company that I've, I, 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 I'm enamored of and I think they're brilliant. They use a, uh, a really cool rank tracking technology called Nozzle that allows them to do up to the minute uh, rank tracking changes. And the reason they do it is because when they run certain types of, of broadcast creative on radio and TV spots, they, they're able to see uh, ranking fluctuations down to the minute. And one of the most brilliant things I ever heard is that their inbound calls or their, their call center, which is all inbound, um, when the when those rankings shift, like they, they within like a matter of 10 minutes, they'll have, they can have their entire inbound call center switch to outbound. So if the lead flow stops because the rankings change, they all those people all start dialing phones instead of fielding calls. Uh, like the level of sophistication behind some of that stuff is just mind blowing. Wow, that is impressive. I've, unfortunately, I was not able to follow those uh, TTT uh, threads. There's so much going on on your community, by the way. Big kudos for for building that. It's just simply amazing. A big fan. Um, but Nozzle, I'm also a big fan of. And Derek was so kind. Derek from Nozzle was so kind uh, to build me database of keywords uh, when I was at Lassen and we presented this tipper uh, model at the Tech SEO Boost conference in Boston uh, last November. That was 2018. Uh, and most of my data that I had or the keyword tracking was informed by a BigQuery database that Derek set up for me. So big shout out to Nozzle. I think they have That's an awesome. amazing... Um, yeah, just an amazing uh, uh, value in terms of uh, rank tracking down to the minute. But I was not aware that some people are already doing that. So you said it was Red Ventures that does it? Yeah, yeah. Red Ventures is easily the most sophisticated SEO team in the country. I mean, maybe the world. Like it's Rick Elias, the CEO there, has just built a fucking incredible business. I so yeah, if you mean... So yeah, like some of like the smartest SEOs I've ever met, uh, Ian Howells being one of them, uh, Epi Void is another one who's sort of in the shadows of SEO these days, but they were both, at, at, you know, they both like really cut their teeth and got deep in, in like money hat SEO uh, while they were at Red Ventures before moving on. Wow. Um, so yeah, I can't say enough, but just enough good things about that company and how impressive they are. Nice. Yeah, I have to check them out. I feel like I'm missing out a big time there, but yeah, all the people you mentioned uh, definitely big names and really, really smart people. Uh, and he's also uh, one of the co-founders of Traffic Think Tank, right? Yeah, him and, him and Barbie. Yeah, yeah, him and Barbie. Uh, I remember that. And I, I recently read uh, Barbie's post about the conference uh, in, uh, what was it, in, in March, uh, the first Traffic Think Tank it was, conference. It was January, yeah, it was, yeah, it was January in Philly. Yeah, what a nightmare that was. <laughs> yeah, the conference was great. We had a great time, but it was, it was, that was a shit show. Because none of us knew what we were doing. Like, we had no idea what we were doing. So, um yeah, that was a mess. Yeah, I actually talked to uh, Matt Barbie uh, before us recording that uh, uh, video, and I asked him a couple of questions to ask you, uh, and he mentioned that 
uh, at the peak of stress of organizing Traffic Think Tank Live 2019. Uh, he asked you and, and, and Ian how you were doing, <laughs> and you replied, it's an ongoing nightmare I can't wake up from. It's <laughs> uh, spot on accurate, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like it's going to be different this year or next year, better said? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, we actually got really lucky and we got introduced to um, the, uh, the company that uh, does all the event planning and management for MozCon, um, and we hired them um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant, uh, woman, um, whose name I'm, I'm completely blanking on right now, but her, her entire event company, event staff, they're doing everything. So, um, I imagine it's going to be much, much better because we have professionals doing it as opposed to three bonehead SEOs that have no idea how to run an event. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can, uh, I can only imagine what that's like. Uh, we just had our first conference at G2 called Reach. Uh, and I was, you know, like Lauren, who is one of my peers, uh, she did just an, a mind-blowing job of organizing it. But I I was kind of on, on the, you know, at, at the sides or at the edge of the whole conference uh, in terms of organization and planning. And I could just really see and feel how draining and hard it is. Uh, but he, so what, another thing that Matt uh, mentioned was that you hate it when people use the word do follow. <laughs> Sorry, I find it funny because <laughs> I totally feel you. But what's wrong with those people? Honestly, I do. My favorite, my favorite thing has been, um, has been seeing it in the wild. Like, like we've stumbled, like we've been doing, we'll be doing audits for clients and we'll stumble across either sometimes in client sites, but more times in like competitor sites where they'll have the rel attribute. They'll have links <laughs> in their sites and it'll say rel do follow. And like, nothing is more amazing than that in my entire life. And, and, and I give, I give Tim Sulo at Ahrefs, I give him shit about this constantly, um, because they're just perpetuating it. And and like like there is something to be said about the idea that like if it helps increase um, understanding around a concept that it's okay for like nomenclature to be adapted. But the fact that like you're talking about an actual language like HTML is an actual language like like the, like there's compliant markup like the W three W three C movement school like 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 it's a it, it's a lot of hard work that a lot of people did to standardize this language so we have a standard language across the entire internet and all you're doing by proliferating that garbage is is, is ruining their good work um yeah i hate it you're right I definitely we should call it yes follow <laughs> i like affirmative i like affirmative follow affirmative follow positive follow <laughs> let us see there's the seos riffing off of synonyms uh love that um and then, like, another thing that I really wanted to touch upon, if that's cool for you, um, that also, uh, Matt mentioned, but that also, uh, came up when I, when I kind of stalked you through the internet is, um, ADD Hero, um, and how you kind of have a project, um, and how you manage it super well. So can you, can you just, like, elaborate a little bit on that? Um, yeah. So, uh, I got really excited about that project, uh, like three years ago, um, uh, around like Thanksgiving. And it was because I had been introduced to a handful of strategies from a bunch of friends and peers and like other folks that like have ADHD um, that like, and I had never tried medication. So like I was always trying to figure out how to manage um, like all of this stuff and like try to keep on task and focus. And, and my, um, my COO uh, at the agency will say like, like, you know, one of the things he, if you asked him like the first few years while we were, were you know, building FTF, like what his job was, he would say to tell Nick no, um, because I was just constantly having like new ideas and, they, and, and it was, it's hard to get anything done if you're constantly changing course. Yeah. Um, so I had to find a lot of ways to like self-regulate, self-police, because I, I really didn't want to try medication. Um, and I found a lot of ways to do it. It was a mixture of uh, 
diet uh, uh, tasks, like like uh, ways to do things, ways to not do things, like specific strategies. And I, I wrote it all down and I shared it with a peer group of mine and people really liked it. So I was like, they, they were like, you really should publish this. And like, that was sort of where the whole idea had come from. Um, so I had a lot of fun with it for a while and I went really hard at it. And then the agency picked up and, and it got sort of backburnered. But uh, I, I planned to I want to pick the project back up again because it means a lot to me personally. Um, I since uh, I've got, I feel like I've got more experiences to share now because I tried Vyvanse. Um, I tried, you know, the medication thing. I was like, I've, I've, I've got way too much work to do every day. I, I need professional help. Yeah. Um, and and Vyvanse, I, I hated it. I really didn't like the way it made me feel. Um, I see way more benefits from going to uh, to see a psychiatrist every two weeks. Um, to doing, uh, you know, just, just staying on a, a workout schedule, making sure like, people with ADHD should definitely sweat at least once a day, whether it's a short run or bike ride. Like that's really important to get those endorphins flowing. Um, and then also uh, acupuncture has been hugely helpful uh, for me, like wildly helpful. But uh, funny enough, a buddy of mine, uh, John Henry Shirk, uh, just sent me this literally this morning, uh, which I, I had read about, but I hadn't tried. And sort of, uh, so I'm, I'm giving this a try, ashwagandha. It's an it's a Indian herb they've been using for hundreds of years. Uh, supposed to be really great, um, but it, it's it's a constant struggle. Um, and any any time, um, I've met a lot of people in SEO, and I've met a lot of entrepreneurs that also have this. So it's been it's been amazing, like to have ADD Hero as this sort of platform just to connect with other people, um, because this, the amount of shared experiences is kind of incredible, and a lot of the backstories are amazing. Um, I only ever got diagnosed because uh, the school that I was at in like first and second grade. They were convinced I had a learning disability. They were like, you know, they told my parents, like, you know, there's something really wrong with your child. Like he, he doesn't can't sit still in class. He sneaks out of the classroom. Like it was, it was this whole big thing. So like they thought, yeah, there was like a you know major learning disability. And um, I think there was there's still a stigma. I think there was definitely a stigma 25 years ago um, when I was first diagnosed roundabout. But uh, I think there's still a stigma now. Uh, so it's just nice that more people are talking about it. That absolutely is, but I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think way more people are dealing with ADHD uh, than most people would think. Uh, it's funny because I talk to a lot of people in the industry and a lot of them have, if not ADHD, uh, they have kind of, I don't want to say symptoms of it, but kind of, you know, indicators of something very similar. So it almost is like a common denominator. But I'm very curious and intrigued by your like uh, diet and how you organize yourself. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do you... What does your diet and your yourself um, organization look like for ADHD? Um, so I've I've tried really hard, and I'm not I, I haven't completely done it. It's like I grew up with a really bad sweet tooth. Like I I still I love candy. Um, it's terrible for you, just everybody. But it's but uh, like that definitely like fed into a lot of the issues I found. Like sugar is just horrible. Um, period for everybody, but it's really bad for ADHD. So uh, cutting sugar out of my life as much as possible. Um, I tried the plant-based thing, um, and recently there's been new research that's come out, like really recently, like within the past month, that like uh, like red meat's actually not as horrible for you as a lot of people would have you believe. Yep. Um, so like I, I keep a pretty regimented protein diet, so high protein diet. Try to stay low on carbs. Um, I, I limit my coffee intake, so like I try not to do more than two coffees a day. I, there was a point where I was doing five, eight, like just constant coffee all the time. Um, and that was like really having negative effects on my sleep habits. Um, I've learned that by like, cutting out sugar and dialing back coffee, um, keeping a high protein diet, trying to really cut back on carbs, that um, I uh, actually exhibit some symptoms of super sleepers. So I only really need about six hours of sleep. 
um, to feel great. Uh, and if I go over like seven or eight, I'll actually be more tired. Um, so like starting to learn, like, so like one of the things I talk about in, um, in the free ebook on ADD hero is this idea of like biological prime time, cause it's different for everybody. And like the way that you would discover it is like keeping a log for a week of like what you're doing, how you're feeling. Um, like, you know, if you want to get crazy, you can do glucose level checks with paper strips, but like drinking a lot of water, but like really understanding like, Hey, what are the times of day that I've, I am the most focused or I have the most energy and I'm the most productive because it's different. There's windows, right? And like for me, it's like eight to eleven a.m. and then like from eleven a.m. to one, like that's when I'll try to read. Like if that's like not a good time for me, just like biologically, so like I'll try to read blog posts or like jump into Slack and try to think for a little while. And then like from one to three, I can usually sprint again. And then I like get three, like I need to like get away from my computer for a half hour, go for a walk. That's usually when I'll get my second coffee of the day. Um, and then I usually have like a nice little sprint period from like four to six or four to seven at night. Uh, but like understanding those components is like, like it's really important for learning how to structure your day. Um, I think the most important thing that I do is is this just constant prioritization. Like like having this like uh, like literally like right here like just constantly um, prioritizing, reprioritizing, like writing stuff down, move like like reassessing what's most important, moving it into. Um, I, I use a free uh, Chrome extension called Momentum Dash. That lets me like put some plugin, like uh, like lets me put some to dos like right in my face. It lets me set like what like the one most important thing to do every day. So anytime I open a new browser tab, it's right in my face. Um, it's just a lot of it's a lot of little things. Yeah, it's like I death love by that. a thousand cuts. And, and by the way, for everybody who is listening to the audio version of this, uh, Nick just uh, showed a a pad that says "not urgent." Uh, so I do assume it's a lot about just getting stuff out of your head. Uh, and I'm currently kind of transitioning to the getting stuff done method uh, from David Allen. And he talks yeah. a lot about that concept, right? It's just like um, kind of uh, being or having more energy and being less strained from just getting a lot of these to-dos and things that are on your mind somewhere written down and out of your head, right? And I really like this quote from him, um, which is your mind was made to uh, having ideas, not to storing them or not to keeping them. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I, I feel, or I got a lot of benefits out of the exact same thing. It's just a long list of everything that's going on. And then I have the mental capacity focus on something else again. Cool. Um, awesome. So um, let's wrap this up right here. I feel like it's a really good point. Um, Nick, uh, plug all the places on the internet. Uh, and if you want to offline as well, where people can find you, uh, <laughs> where can we follow you? Um, I'm, I'm probably way too active on Twitter. Um, I think if you search Nick Eubanks on Twitter, I think I'll, I'll at least come up for now. As soon as, as Nick Eubanks from Michigan makes into the NFL, I will definitely be nowhere to be found. He's already bumped me out of the knowledge graph. Um, I haven't made a concerted effort to take that back yet, but I will be trying to do that. I don't think I'm going to actually be able to do it, especially when he's in the NFL. Um, so that that's going to be a fun, fun thing to stick along with. Um, NickEubanks.com is a place I occasionally blather about uh, garbage. ADDHero.com is where I try to be useful. Uh, and then TrafficThinkTank.com uh, is where I spend it and an exorbitant amount of my time. Awesome, Nick. I thank you so much. Conversation was really, really insightful. I learned a ton from you and you're just an amazingly good guy. So i uh, just glad I met you and thank you for everything. I was, it's extremely kind of you to say uh, and I feel the same way. So thank you so much, Kevin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome, Nick. Thank you so much.